0: I have a dream you're listening to oh brother when art thou and now here's your host Neil White
1: welcome to oh brother when art thou I'm your host Neil White joined as always by my brother David David how the heck are you doing pretty good you pretty good exciting times we're living in there's an election going on here in Canada the u.s they're gearing up for an election the president is going to be impeached in england they're talking about brexit there's things going on there it seems like everywhere you look david something is something exciting is happening in the world sometimes it
0: seems like all of history is just one set of exciting events following another
1: especially if you listen to it in podcast form because we just skip ahead to the exciting bits which is what we're going to do right now. David, you ready to do a podcast?
0: I might just have a story for you, Neil.
1: All right, then. I have to ask you the question that is the basis of this whole podcast. Oh, brother, when art thou?
0: Neil, it's sometime in late September or maybe early October, 1597. And Admiral Yi Sun-Shin is writing a reply to his latest orders from the king. He has been ordered to scuttle the remnants of the Korean fleet and lead his soldiers to fight as infantry on land in the defense of Seoul. He writes back a refusal, saying, Your humble servant still commands no fewer than twelve ships. Even though our navy is small, I promise you that as long as I live, The enemy cannot
1: despise us.
0: They're bold words, but can he back them up?
1: Strong words, David. I love it. You know I love a badass quote. So I am on his side already. What is happening in Korea, David? Who are the enemy? So the enemy for Koreans in 1597
0: is Japan. Japan invaded Korea in 1592. There was an epic war for four years. In 1596 there was a ceasefire agreed to. The Japanese retreated back to just the ports where they'd launched their invasion. But then the ceasefire broke down and now the Japanese are on the attack again, driving with their forces up the Korean peninsula.
1: So, where did they start? Did he always have just 12 ships on his side? No. At the start
0: of the war, in 1592, Admiral Yi was the new, bold commander of the majority of the Korean fleet. Hundreds of ships, a powerful fleet, starting a war where clearly the Japanese have to cross over Japan is an island, They can't deploy their troops to Korea unless they can ship them from Japan. So the Navy was clearly going to be very important in this war. Now, Admiral Yi was not actually a sailor or an admiral by trade. He'd only been appointed an admiral in 1591, one year before the invasion and he didn't have any naval experience at all before that. He'd been a senior military leader for years in various positions, but unfortunately for General Yi, as he was at the time, he was not politically very popular. His family were politically important in the court, but not winning the political battles that were going on at the time so multiple times he was stripped of various prestigious commands that he held because he had enemies at court who liked to do that like to take things away from him when they could but then eventually because he was a competent soldier and because he did still have some connections at court he would get reappointed somewhere else and after A few different rounds of this happening they just appointed him to the Navy because it was out of the way at the time nobody thought it was very important so it wouldn't be as contentious a position for him to be in as one of the more prominent cavalry kind of roles that were you know the good spots but when they made him an admiral he took it seriously And he really threw himself all in to learning how to be a sailor. He started designing his own ships and his own ship types personally to build better warships than the Korean Navy had ever had. Just because he was being thrown out of the way didn't mean that he didn't treat this as just as important as any other command he could have gotten.
1: All right, so they demoted him or put him aside by sending him to the Navy. But that's not going to stop General Yi. He is going to make the best of it and make the best of being in the Navy. I like that, David. I like that sort of gumption. I'm, I'm really on board with this guy so far. So just one year after he gets put into the Navy, he now has to fight a war against Japan. He now has to fight a war.
0: And in the opening campaigns, he proves to be, in a word... Brilliant! He is clearly the best admiral that either side has. In multiple naval campaigns, the Japanese Navy, specially built up before the war started so that they would massively outnumber the Korean Navy, is always able to press forward and get there troop transports to Korea. But in battle after battle, Yi manages to pick off small isolated elements of the fleet or unescorted transports and destroy them, ship after ship, never losing a single ship of his own, but destroying over the years hundreds of Japanese ships, becoming such a thorn in their side that the Japanese begin launching special missions just to take him out, and every one of those missions fails.
1: And he got this good, David, in just one year by applying himself to a job that he never really wanted, that nobody thought was a good job. Exactly. So
0: you would think that everybody would love him, and it would be like, great, let's have him be our admiral all the time and not worry about it. Yeah, it sounds like he should be a national hero. But actually, to the Korean high command of the time, to the king especially, there's an issue. And the issue is that their armies on land keep on getting crushed. In battle after battle, their land troops are no match for the Japanese samurai and the Japanese musketeers who are all experienced, battle-hardened warriors. I should mention, at this point, that Japan has just ended decades of what are known in Japanese history as the Sengoku Jidai, the Warring States Period, a period when various samurai clans battled for dominance over the nation. And so, the Japanese have an overabundance of extremely experienced troops that the Koreans just can't match so in battle after battle the Japanese are driving forward and as the news of these victories from the navy picking off Japanese ship after Japanese ship come, what the king starts asking is why can't ye face the main Japanese fleet why can't he just stop these transports instead of just nibbling around the edges.
1: Okay, David, I'll take the bait. Why can't he? Well, the issue here is the
0: massive overmatch between the size of the navies. Yi has better ships. He has personally designed the turtle ship, as the Koreans call it. A ship that is both maneuverable, yet also very heavily built so that it is very difficult to sink and covered over uh, with a deck on top to protect its crew from Japanese archers that is also and this is the important bit built with very heavy powerful cannon that no one else in Northeast Asia of the time can match and these are one of the keys to his success he designed this ship and he uses it very well to sink japanese ships at range while the japanese train to board to put their troops onto enemy ships and seize them and they can't match these cannon-based tactics their only hope is to try and rush the korean ships with a much larger number of ships and then get troops get some of their ships to get through just through sheer numbers but because he always avoids a main action and always keeps his maneuverability they never get their
1: chance so can ye explain this to the king David is this gonna go over well in the high court or is he gonna have to fight the kind of battle that the king wants him to fight and the Japanese want him to fight but he doesn't want to fight. Well, at this point, something
0: new happens. A spy is arrives, is found by a Korean official. And he explains that he's found this Japanese who's willing to spy on the Japanese Navy. And this spy has reported that the Japanese Navy is going to be in a certain port at a certain time with their guard lowered for very specific reasons. And with that information, this official, who happens to be also a naval commander subordinate to he, has drawn up a plan for how they could pull off an ambush and destroy the Japanese fleet and the king loves it. So he orders the Admiral, take your fleet and execute this ambush.
1: It does sound, David, like a great opportunity that has presented itself to them. So Admiral Yi
0: looks at the plan
1: and he refuses
0: it flat out. He says that the path that they would have to take to reach this port would take them through a narrow channel with rocks and tides that would be extremely dangerous. The times that they would have to do it to take advantage of this opportunity would be terrible for them and it would be far too easy for the entire fleet to get trapped and destroyed by the Japanese if they took this risk. It's too much of a risk. He won't do it. Absolutely not.
1: Okay, so we have the pros and the cons. What ends up happening, David? So the king decides that this is proof that Yi lacks
0: courage maybe he's even collaborating with the Japanese maybe everything has been a trick he decides this is proof at least of cowardice in the face of the enemy he orders Admiral Yi arrested he orders Admiral Yi tortured to make sure that if he was collaborating with the Japanese at least they'll find out. This is how he's going to get the information, just in case. And he orders another guy, one of Yi's subordinates, to take command of the fleet and execute the ambush. The guy he orders to take command of the fleet also isn't super happy with the plan, but watching the admiral who just refused to do it get tortured has a way of making you decide, you know what? Let's go ahead. So the Korean fleet
1: sails forth to try and execute this plan. So not a good turn of events for our hero, General Yi. Is it going to be a good turn of events, David, for the Korean Navy? So it turns out that the Japanese official who
0: agreed to work as a spy is actually a double agent. He's been working for the Japanese Navy all along the entire opportunity is just a trap the japanese fleet was never going to lower their guard there's another second japanese fleet waiting for the koreans to sail into the narrow constricted channel they have to cross and then both japanese fleets seal off both ends and begin rushing in at the korean fleet and it's just a massacre the korean fleet is decimated. Practically all of their ships are destroyed, the ones that manage to break out using their superior cannon are scattered and flee across the length and breadth of Korea just looking for somewhere safe to land. And in the immediate aftermath of this disastrous battle, the Japanese infantry, who've already known about the plan, of course, launch an offensive, taking advantage of the fact that their supply lines are finally secured, no one can raid their supply convoys anymore because the Korean Navy, from the perspective of the Japanese, is to all intents and purposes, gone.
1: David, it just goes to prove that if it seems too good to be true, it probably is, and what a disaster. For the Korean army, they fell right into the Japanese trap. It just really couldn't have gone any worse, David. But if you wanted to make matters worse, they tortured their star admiral. So how are they going to turn it around here, David? Is it possible for the Koreans to turn it around? Well, this takes us back to where we were at the start
0: of the podcast. 1597. 1597. The king releases Admiral Yi. He says, well, you're back in charge of the fleet now. And Admiral Yi goes out to try and muster as much of his fleet as he can and see what can be done about this turn of events. And then the king finds out that the Japanese armies are pressing on the city that in the modern day we would call Seoul. And it's the capital of Korea, even at the time. And the king says, okay, there's not enough time to create a new fleet. Admiral Yi, just scuttle whatever ships you've got and bring all of your crews back so that at least we can use them as infantry in front of our capital."
1: And David, just tell us one more time, what does General Yi say to this direct order from the king?
0: Remembering that he has only a very short time before been tortured for failing to obey a direct order from the king, his response is, Your humble servant still commands no fewer than twelve ships. Even though our Navy is small, I promise you that as long as I live, the enemy cannot despise us.
1: Boom! So David, what is he gonna do with just 12 ships? So, it's time for him to make a plan. And his old plan
0: of convoy raiding that he was doing before he left command of the Navy, is not gonna work with just 12 ships but the situation's changed for the Japanese too. Now they need to supply their troops in this all-important push on Seoul. And to do it they want to transfer their ships all the way around the Korean Peninsula to the other side of the peninsula because that will get them closer to the city and allow them to deliver supplies to the fighting troops near the front line, which is what they need to do. So Admiral Yi realizes that on this long journey, there's multiple spots where they're going to want to sail close to shore in places where he can intercept them. So he draws up a plan. Carefully... Weighing all the options he draws up a plan that takes very specific use of the currents of the constricted channels that abound in the korean coastal waters and of the capabilities of all of the ships all of which he knows because he designed them well this is a fun bit he personally designed the turtle ship Every single turtle ship, which used to be his favorite famous ships and were spectacular designs for the 1590s, by the way, anywhere in the world, but every one of those has been sunk because they were in the vanguard of the fleet when it got ambushed, but he still knows every Korean warship by this point,
1: front to back, top to bottom just shows off his work habit, David, and how much good work he did after becoming the Admiral. He has learned the
0: details across five long years of war, and that is going to pay off now because he knows that his advantage is in fighting at range with the cannon that the Japanese just can't match. And by cunningly using his knowledge of where the Japanese are going to want to go, how they're going to get there, and the tides, he's able to pick an ambush spot where the Japanese can only come on in small numbers because it's a constricted channel so they can't go around him or sail all their ships at him at once, they have to come on one after another but again have to come on slowly because of the tides and the prevailing winds and then at his chosen spot he will ambush the Japanese by using his 13 ships. He has managed to get one more ship, one of the survivors from the battle that were not with him when he wrote to the king. Using his 13 ships to fire at maximum range and then withdraw essentially but reload And then re-engage again and again over and over hammer down the Japanese defenses and sink ship after ship in a run-in battle that lasts hours and at the end of it Admiral Yi has not lost a single ship but the Japanese have lost so many that even though it's Admiral Yi's fleet who out of ammunition have sailed away from the battlefield I suppose on the sea (laughs) so to speak. Nonetheless the Japanese are unwilling to keep on going to Seoul as they had planned and they stop the convoy to resupply the Japanese troops pushing on the Korean capital which stalemates the fighting on land and Turns around the entire thing from the capital almost certainly going to fall to a brutal stalemate in front of Seoul.
1: A huge victory, David, for the Koreans, and all thanks to the cunning and the knowledge of Admiral Yi, who not that long before they were torturing, thinking he was a Japanese double agent or some such thing. Do we know, David, how many ships the Japanese lost? So
0: we have Admiral Yi's diary, actually, as one of our sources on his life. And he claimed in the
1: aftermath of the battle to have sunk 30 Japanese ships. So more than twice as many ships as they even had in their entire fleet, just 13, he sank 30 Japanese ships. Ships without losing one of those 13. He definitely sank at least 30
0: Japanese ships. We don't have reliable records from the Japanese fleet, which wasn't a modern fleet in the way we know it and didn't necessarily raise ships ways we would be used to. But some modern naval historians think he may have sunk more than 30, but he definitely sunk at least 30 ships with only 13 of his own and without losing a single one.
1: What a huge victory, David. Give us the wrap up here. How does the war end? So I didn't mention
0: it, but already by this point, China has allied with Korea. And later on in the war, the Chinese are able to deploy large numbers of troops to aid the Koreans. Which drives the Japanese back. And the Japanese end up bottled in the port of Busan. And then, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, at this point, is the leader of Japan, essentially. And he dies. And no one else in the Japanese government is actually happy with this entire war. It was mostly Toyotomi's idea to start with so they decide to withdraw their troops and in a dramatic ending to our story Admiral Yi dies in the last battle of the war commanding his fleet attempting to cut off the Japanese retreat from the peninsula as the Japanese are trying to pull all of their ships back to Japan now that they have been clearly defeated on land.
1: A tragic ending for Admiral Yi, David, but they very well might not have won the war if he hadn't successfully executed his ambush and cut off the supplies to the Japanese forces, saving Seoul.
0: Certainly It makes him a national hero to this day in both Korea's actually north and south and it helps to make him certainly the best known naval hero in Korean history but also well known and respected in Japan where he is still recognized today as one of, if not the greatest Admirals of all time.
1: What a great story, thanks for telling us, David. Always happy to, Neil. And thank you for listening, make sure if you liked it, go give us a rating, it really helps us out. Whatever your favorite podcast app is, we're available on most of them, if not all of them. So go ahead and give us a rating and a review, we appreciate it. David, we like to end with a quiz or something kind of fun here at the end. Are you up for a quiz? I'm up for a quiz. All right, David. I was thinking about animals and specifically pets because I got a new cat the other day. You might have heard it in the background of our last podcast. He tends to make a lot of noise. So, David, I thought we'd talk about the pets of some famous people from history. So I have a list here of pets, and I'm going to see if you can guess the owner. This sounds difficult. It's quite difficult. I I don't think you're going to do very well. Alright, our first one, David. A sheepdog named Martha. A sheepdog named Martha. Yes. It belonged to a very famous British... should Should I say the occupation? I'll say a very famous British musician. Whew. British musician who owned a sheepdog named Martha. Perhaps I'll guess... Arthur Sullivan. Well, David, if you're familiar with the Beatles' White Album, you may remember a song titled, Martha, My Dear. That was written by Paul McCartney about Martha, who was the unofficial fifth Beatle. Ha! So there you go. Alright, this next one. You might have heard this this story. This is uh, quite famous. It was... A gray parrot named Pole. A gray parrot named Pole. It was quite famous for blurting out swear words.
0: Can't say I've heard the story. Trying to think of historical figures who would be likely to own a parrot. And swear a lot. And swear a lot. No one springs to mind. Is he a pirate?
1: Is this Blackbeard's parrot? A good guess, David. This actually belonged to President Andrew Jackson. So, not that far off from a pirate. <laughs> All right, David. Another fairly famous one here, I think. A Pekingese dog named Luti. Another dog, and this one also belonged to a Brit. Huh. Luti. Not great taste in naming
0: pets if nothing else uh i got nothing
1: well this belonged to queen victoria who was a great lover of dogs and uh this particular dog the Pekingese named Ludi, was gifted to her by captain hart dunn of the 99th regiment during the second opium war they actually took it from the summer palace in beijing after they stormed it so this was a fairly well-traveled dog, David. Came all the way from Beijing to live in another palace with Queen Victoria. A bit of loot named Luti. Exactly. All right, David, this is my favorite one. An ocelot named Babu. Ocelot. Yeah, a little bit strange. Belonged to an artist who was himself perhaps a little bit strange. Those artists... Well, I've got no idea. I'll guess Pablo Picasso. A good choice, David, and uh, Pablo Picasso, also famously a great animal lover, but the ocelot belonged to Salvador Dali, and Babu was one of the few living creatures that Dali seemed to genuinely care about, even though Babu was barely tame and tended to frighten passers-by, which I love, this barely tame pet so-called animal. Baboo. All right, David, we're going to go way back in time for our last question here. A lion named Slayer of Foes. Great name for a lion. Owned a lion. That seems a
0: bold choice for a
1: pet. If you make a bold choice, give it a bold name, like Slayer of Foes.
0: Slayer of Foes is an excellent name for any kind of a pet, I would think. Perhaps the
1: pet of Shaka Zulu? This was actually, David, the pet of Pharaoh Ramses II. And he actually rode into battle with Ramses. And he would fight fiercely. He was aggressive and loyal only to Ramses, making him quite the weapon of war. Amazing that we know the name
0: of the pet of a pharaoh from ancient egypt
1: well david i imagine it was quite the sight to behold with this lion riding into war beside him and killing his enemies on his behalf that's pretty memorable thanks for playing along david i always enjoy these neil and thanks for listening